remember from last week. Anything? Anything? Anything stuck out to you? Where were we? How about I read it first? That might jog your memory a little bit. Let's read Proverbs chapter 30, and we're in verses 1 through 6. Proverbs 30, 1 through 6. And this is Agur's autobiography, specifically his confession. So you have the words of Agur, son of Jacka, the oracle. The man declares, and we said this probably should be translated to Ithiel, his son. The man declares inspired utterance to Ithiel, I am weary, O God, but I can prevail. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One, who has ascended to heaven and come down, who has gathered the wind in his fists, who has wrapped up the waters in a garment, who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. So that is um, Agur's confession. That's where we're going to be this morning, specifically verses 5 and 6. But what do you remember from last week? Uh, Verses 1 through 4. Anything? That he was uh, possibly a uh, Gentile converted. Yep, yep, we get that from the fact that his name doesn't appear in the scriptures, but it appears in other related languages to uh, to uh, to Hebrew. And also from the fact that he confesses, I've not learned wisdom, which implies he's tried. He's gone to teachers and has sought out wisdom by human means and has failed. And then he confesses that uh, he has succeeded through the scriptures, through the inspired revelation given to Israel. So, yeah, very possibly a Gentile converted. Maybe even in Solomon's court, definitely inspired a prophet. Um, and we know there is numerous uh, sages in Israel. So, good. Anything else? It reminds me of Daniel's question here of the passage where God is asking Job, mm-hmm. like, who has done this? Yep. Like, you don't know. And so, in, in this passage, he's asking the same questions, but, but he's searching for that. Yep, excellent. Excellent. It, it definitely has echoes of Job 38 uh, and following. And uh, one commentator says that Agur begins where Job ended. Job ends saying, Lord, I know nothing. And he realizes, and this is where Agur begins. He's come to the end of himself and he realizes, man has no knowledge, true knowledge of God or life um, apart from revelation. um, So it's good. Anything else? It's Job 28. Uh, I encourage you to go back there and read. Uh, it's also Proverbs 2 6. The Lord gives wisdom. Page one and so, Very good. Anything else? Well, not only that, what we talked about, but then he despaired yep. of his own wisdom. Yep. He saw that it wasn't accurate. And that's the key. And, you know, until man comes to that point, and ultimately he comes to that point through the aid of the Holy Spirit, um, despairing of how have it. It has to has to come from outside of me. So, what's well, good? Well, this morning we're going to go on to verses five and six. 
And we're going to see uh, how Agur uh, moves on to exclaim his confident answer. So in his confession, he despairs and he expresses hope. His ignorant condition is mourned. And his revealing questions are asked. Now, verses 5 to 6, his confident answers are exclaimed. True wisdom and knowledge of God can only be found in God's word, namely the law and prophets. And for us New Testament believers, um, the scriptures written by the apostles. And his answer to his, weir- to his weariness and his failed attempts to find wisdom and knowledge of God, Agur answers and tells us that it has already been perfectly revealed to us in God's written word. What's so significant about these two verses, 5 and 6, if you look at them, is they are both quotations from other places in the Old Testament. Um, Verse 5 is a quote from the Psalms. And verse 6 is a quote from Deuteronomy. And it's really significant because Agur is not only saying that true wisdom and knowledge of God comes from revelation in general, but it comes exclusively in his written word. Namely, the Law and the Prophets, which David and Moses represent. Agur is saying, do you want to know the God about whom all things exist? What is essential for this life and the next? How to rightly live your life? Have true knowledge? It is found exclusively in his written revelation. Uh, so there's massive claims that Agur is making here. And, um, so we're going to dig into these verses. But before we dive in here... Uh, I just want to take a step back and sort of consider Agra's method of apologetics. When we first started our series in Proverbs, I told you we'd do a little thing called Proverbs and Apologetics and sort of understand, because Proverbs really goes after this, having a biblical epistemology. How do we know truth? How do we know knowledge? Where do we get it from? And Agra really gives us the, uh, the model. So flip over to the implications page, and uh, it's number one. I just call it Agra and Apologetics. What's very significant about this passage is that we see that Agra does not seek to prove or prop up the scriptures on man's wisdom or on man's knowledge or on what man can prove, man's reason. He doesn't first attempt to prove the scriptures by something external to the scriptures before he seeks to use them. It's very significant. He doesn't try to use... Um, and prove God's word and prop it up on rationalism or science or philosophy before he uses the scriptures. Because such an attempt would be what? It would be a direct contradiction to what he has just said of the insufficiency of man's knowledge, right? So how could he base the infallible word that, yeah, this is true and reliable because of what fallible man's knowledge says? It would be supporting it. It doesn't work. It would be a contradiction. So from Agur's model, we learn that our ultimate authority must be the scriptures. It is our starting point. It is our presupposition that we begin at, from which we conclude everything else. Um, there's nothing beyond the scriptures we appeal to for our faith in the scriptures, in other words. The scriptures are it. That's where we start. And I'm going to flesh this out in just a, just a minute. Um, We do not demand that the scriptures first conform to what we think is acceptable and what we think is reasonable before we place our faith in the scriptures. That would be putting man's wisdom, man's finite knowledge as support under the scriptures. And Agra doesn't do that, nor should we. 
If that was our attitude, then we still haven't come to the place Aggers come to, of despairing of his own wisdom and knowledge. Um, so it's from this framework, this conviction, that the scriptures themselves testify to themselves and to their true reliability. And that's exactly the pattern Adam gives us. In other words, man must come to scripture not with his own criteria that the scriptures must bend and bow to before they will be believed. And man does this all the time. This is the point of 1 Corinthians, you know, where Paul says, Jews demand what? They demand signs, and Greeks demand wisdom. And Paul said, we do what? We proclaim Christ crucified. We give them neither. I don't bow the scriptures to man's expectations and reason. I don't give them the sign that they demand in order for it to be believed and acceptable. Because if you do that, the whole goal of the gospel will be missed. What is the goal of the gospel? It is the humbling of mankind under God, right? But if you begin, if that's your starting point where God's word must bow to man, then you failed from the start. Look at what D.A. Carson says in his little book um, Across the, the Crossing Christian Ministry. Excellent. He's I'm talking about this passage in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, Thus the demand for signs becomes the prototype for every condition human beings raise as a barrier to being open to God. I will devote myself to God if he heals my child. You've heard these things before. I'll happily become a Christian if God proves himself to me. I will acknowledge Jesus as Lord if he performs the kind of miracle on demand that removes all doubt. <coughs> In every case, I am assessing him. He is not assessing me. I am not coming to him on his terms. Rather, I am stipulating terms that he must accept if he wants the privilege of my company. You see the difference between those two? It's the arrogance of man that wants to demand God to submit to his standards rather than man submit to God's terms. And the point Agur makes here is just the opposite. He's come to the end of his abilities and desperate for God's revelation. And here we see that Agur concludes that God has already revealed himself perfectly in the scriptures. But the question that you're probably asking, and it's a good question, is does this mean it's just a blind leap of faith? So the scriptures say it's the word of God, so I have no reason to believe it. So just, okay, it's the word of God. Yeah, it's, it, there, there's no reason for it. It's a blind leap of faith. And the answer is absolutely not. The scriptures are worthy of our total, fullest confidence and trust. Well, how is that the case? Um, Agar tells us that he's come to this conclusion that the scriptures are the word of God, totally reliable, not on the basis of human knowledge, not because it was proven by philosophy or human reason or modern science or any of these things, but he's come to this conclusion in the confidence of the written word of God, not because the scriptures have met his demands, but because the scriptures were taken on their own terms and we recognize the massive incentives of belief that the scripture give us in themselves. So look at how Westminster puts it. Westminster Confessions is very helpful. And I'll try to wrap, uh, summarize everything to crystallize our point here. So it asks the question, um, in what way does the Bible manifest itself to us that it is indeed the, the word of God? It says the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, 
the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby if it doth abundantly, look at this, evidence itself to be the will of God. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work, look at this, of the Holy Spirit. That's decisive. That's what has to happen. The Holy Spirit opened our eyes, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So it's not as though it's a blind leap in the dark. Rather, the scriptures have sufficient testimony in themselves to commend themselves to us. A good illustration of this is Christ doing signs and wonders. There's nothing wrong with signs and wonders. But you have to take Jesus on his own terms, right? He did signs and wonders for people to believe, to evidence, and to show that he is very God and very God, that he is who he said he is. But he didn't respond very kindly to people that made their own demands of signs and wonders. Jesus, I believe if you do a sign, he never responded well to that. And it's the same with Scripture. There's abundant evidence within the Scriptures not supported by human reasoning, not forcing it to bow to what we demand of it. Wayne Grudem put it this way, it is important to remember that this conviction that the words of Scripture are the words of God does not come apart from the words of Scripture or in addition to the words of Scripture. It is rather, as people read Scripture, that they hear their Creator's voice speaking to them in the words of Scripture. And realize that the book they are reading is unlike any other book. And that it is indeed a book of God's own words speaking to their hearts. So what's so significant of what Agur does here is he not only says that the scriptures are the word of God, but he goes to a psalm. Look at this, verse 5. He goes to a psalm that highlights the reliable character of God's word. He says, we need revelation. God's given us revelation in his word, and that is manifest and evident in the character and the nature of his word, because it is pure. And that's what, is he, what he puts on display. The scriptures are both our source of revelation, and by their very character, they testify that they are God's word. And that is Agur's point. We need revelation, it's in his word, and the scriptures authenticate themselves. We don't need to bring man's wisdom to profit up. We can't. They're not supported by man. They're the ultimate authority by, to which we bow, to which we submit everything else. It's a massive, huge point. And how does that relate to apologetics? It changes everything. How you're going to be sharing the gospel. How you're going to defend the faith. How you're going to defend the scriptures. And, um, this probably opens a bigger can of worms than we have time to get into. Um, I want to try to get through this passage. And if we have any time at the end, I will open it up to you guys for questions. And jot them down if so look at verse 5. We'll get into our outline now. So Agur now confidently exclaims his answers. True wisdom and knowledge of God can only be found in God's word, the law and the prophets. And now, in verse 5, he tells us the absolute reliability of God's word. He praises the absolute reliability of God's word. This is a quotation. Look at verse 5. It says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. It's a quotation from Psalm 1830. 
which if you know about Psalm 18, it's a quote, quotation from where? Jacob, you probably know this. You're talking about Samuel. It comes from Samuel, 2 Samuel 22. It's the conclusion uh, of, the, uh, of the book of Samuel. And it really, the point of the psalm is to highlight and summarize what the ideal king looks like. What the, what the ideal Davidic king looks like. It looks like a man who's not like Saul. What is Saul? He's a man who does what? He trusts who? He trusts himself, right? But who's David represent in, in some? He represents the man who trusts God, not human strength. David and Goliath is the paradigm. His trust is in God, not in human strength. And that's the, the point of, of the psalm. And you're probably familiar with, with Psalm 18, the way it begins. You can turn there if you want. Let me just read the first three verses just for a second time. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. What's wrong with these words of refuge? I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. This is Psalm 18. So that's what the psalm's about. The, the true Davidic king, he, he takes refuge in the Lord and God's character. He's safe. True strength is there. But what's so significant about the psalm is how the word of God fits into it. What place the word of God plays in the psalm. It's very significant, and that's what Agur quotes here. Go back to Proverbs 30. Look at verse, verse 5. Verse 5a tells us that the absolute reliability of God's word is based on the purity of God's word. It's based on the purity of God's word. 5a says, every word of God proves true. Your translation might say, is tested. It's flawless. It's pure, is the idea. The picture given is of precious metals. You've, you know the... Uh, illustration was they're, they're smelted, they're melted down, the dross and impurities separate, and it's refined, it's cleansed off. But the idea here of this word is it's done to such an extent that not even a hint of impurity remains. Um, Psalm twelve seven says, "The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times, absolute perfection." Is the idea. And the metaphor obviously doesn't mean that God at, God's word at one point was imperfect and then through time it's been slowly made pure. That's not the idea. It, it's a comparison to metal that has already gone through this process of perfection. The idea is that God's word is without error, without the slightest chance of being, mis, uh, being wrong or misleading, whether intentionally or unintentionally. It is pure. I know we've heard this. We talk about the infallibility, the inerrancy of Scripture. Let the just feel the, the weight and the significance of this, this word. It is pure. It is very reliable. The question is why? What makes it? Where does that come from, the reliability? Well, let's dig into this verse a little bit. Where does it come from? It comes from its divine source. It's the word of who? It's the word of... Word. It's the word of God. Psalm 18.30 began this way. It says, This God, or as for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true or is pure. In other words, the, the character of the scriptures is pure and perfect because the character of the God from which they came from is pure 
perfect. Scripture cannot be of another character than God himself is. They are the reflection of God's character itself. To impugn the scriptures as being anything other than absolute truth, as absolute purity, is to impugn the very character of God from which they came. They're pure because they are God's words. They can't be anything less. They can't be anything else than absolute, accurate, reliable, pure, trusted. Because it's God's words. The reflection of his own nature. But look at the purity of God's word that it's not just from his divine source, it's evident to the smallest detail. What does Agur says? How many words of God? It is some of the words of God. It is every word of God. It's highlighted in the Hebrew by the, the way this, this all is fronted at the beginning. It is every word of God. This goes beyond God's word in general. Uh, that God's word in general is pure, it's true. And that's a true statement. This word zooms into the smallest details of Scripture. It's pure, accurate, without the slightest bit of error. Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a yod, or a dot, a tittle, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The yod is the smallest letter in Hebrew. That's the yod. Where we get the J sound, the yod. And the tittle is not a letter. What is the tittle in Hebrew? The tittle looks like this. This is the hate letter. Where's the tittle? The tittle is this little mark there. Jesus is saying the smallest detail of the letter is inspired. It is perfect. It is pure. Not one smallest aspect of God's word is anything other than pure. It's what Jesus said. That's not my words. Not a bit of it will pass away until it's fulfilled. None of it is insignificant. None of it is an error. Demands our fullest attention because it's a reflection of God's own character. It's weighty when you think about it. It's valuable when you think about it. Before we move on, let me just unpack a couple implications here for you. These truths ought to make us so confident in scripture, that we devote great effort and time to know it. It's a question for myself, is does my current pursuit of God's word testify that I take verse 5 seriously? What do you think? Do, does the effort that I put forth to know and apply God's word to my life look like a person that truly believes God's word is as perfect and reliable and accurate as this? Does it look like it? What would a person look like if they really believed this? Does it look like this? Make the scriptures central in, their, in your life because they are no less reliable than God's very person. That's what this verse is telling us. It's massive. Do I treat the word like that? When I go listen to Pastor Farrell, do I bow with reverence to it like that? It's God's word. That's why we emphasize expository preaching here. It's not just one method along other side, other other methods. It, it we, we preach expositorily because we believe every detail of the scriptures is inspired. It is weight. It is God's pure word to us. So speak, take it seriously down to the smallest detail, but take it a step beyond this, and you're probably like me and saying, well, I don't see this 
perfect in my life. I don't see a full trust in the word like I should. I, I, I see areas in my life where I distrust God's word. I, I don't treat it. I don't feel like it is as pure as it declares itself to be. What do I do? And my exhortation to myself and to you is don't sit around and wait for the lightning bolt. And boom, okay, I now feel it. And now I'll get busy going to the word. It is by going to the scriptures themselves. It is by digging into them yourself and mining it and studying it that you will come to this conclusion. And and then it's a cycle. You go to the scriptures, you learn it, it will confirm itself to you. And the more it confirms itself to you, the more you're going to be driven to it. And then thus and so on. The word of the Lord's flawless. So that's the first uh, implication. Second implication, again, from Charles Bridges, and, and uh, he's a Puritan. He quotes John Owen. Um, it's really good. Owen's, uh, Bridges says, We acknowledge implicitly God as the author of every particle of Scripture, and that every word of God is pure. To reject, therefore, one jot or tittle is sufficient demonstration, as Dr. Owen admirably observes, that no one jot or tittle of it is received as it ought. Upon whatsoever this title and inscription is, the word of Jehovah, there we must stoop and bow down our souls to it and captivate our understandings into the obedience of faith. What's Owen saying here? He's saying that to disregard one part of scripture, no matter how small and insignificant you think it might be, is to impugn the whole. Well, why? Why is that? It's because it equally stands as God's word. You see, to reject one part of it, why would I reject one part of it? Well, because it doesn't accord with what I think should be there. It doesn't accord with my reason or my feelings. And so I reject it. Well, then why would I accept anything else? Well, then, well, it's because what? Because I think it, it accords with what I, I deem is, is worthy. And so it is um, to reject God's word, to exalt self over the entirety of God's word if we reject a little bit. But yeah. Is that the same thing as when you have that verse about if you know the whole law but stumble on one mm-hmm. point type thing? That's a very, very uh, hopeful. I didn't think about that first. Um, maybe. I think that the, the focus on there is that the law, which you sort of see here, is an expression of God's character to violate one bit of it. It's not an insignificant law. You're still violating God's character. So, yeah, I think that there could be an implication you could you could draw from that. That's very good. I did not think of that verse. So there's a couple implications to chew on. Every detail of the scripture, treat with weight. Um, it reflects God's character. So let's move on. God's word is pure, and therefore it is very reliable, but is experienced by those who trust God through his word. Look at 5b. It says he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Notice first the inseparability between God and his word. These, this verse seamlessly weaves. Look at the first line. is about God's word. And the second line is about what? God's person's character. To trust the word is to trust God. And there is no way you can trust God except trusting what? His word. Faith. In God, taking refuge in God is not mere sentimentality or thinking general thoughts about God. It is faith expressed where? To specific truths and promises in the scripture. 
You see how these are wedded together? You hear people all the time say, oh, I believe God, I trust God. And the word of God has no place in their life. That's not faith in God. You take refuge in God, how? By taking refuge in what? In his, in his word. The two are inseparable. And that's the point. He's a shield. Look at God's character, the absolute reliability of God's character. Think of that. God is a shield. It's impenetrable. It's infinite. It's a sovereign shield. It's an all-knowing shield. It's an omnipotent shield. But it is for who? Is it for everybody? No, it's for who? It's for those who trust his word. The amazing thing is how slow we are to believe. If it's this pure, and if we have this big of a promise that God will be our protection and our shield, why don't I run here more often? It's incredible how unbelieving my heart is. Bridges again said, despondency makes the poor, deluded sinner look for some other stay. And even the child of God traces his frequent one of protection to his feeble and uncertain use of his divine shield. How often do I retreat to the scriptures? In my time of need, in my time of trial. We are talking about this yesterday about, about prayer and prayer and the word are so wedded together. We're so independent and we like to do life on our own when infinite help is offered to us in this word. Take it. Chew on this. Apply this to your life. I need to do it. I'm so slow to trust. But beyond that, more than I'm slow to trust, I'm so quick to call God's word into question. It's amazing. Calvin writes this. It's so good. It seems indeed a common commendation to say that the word of God is pure without any mixture of fraud and deceit, like silver, which is well refined and purified from all its dross. But our unbelief is the cause why God, so to speak, is constrained to use such a similitude, such a metaphor, for the purpose of commending and leading us to form exalted conceptions of steadfastness and certainty of his promise. So Calvin is saying, the reason God uses these kind of metaphors to emphasize the purity of God's word is so that we would really trust it because we're bent on not trusting it to see how reliable it is. Now look what he says. For whenever the issue does not answer our expectation, whenever things don't turn out the way I want them to turn out, is what Calvin said. There is nothing to which we are naturally more prone to forthwith to begin to entertain unhallowed and distrustful thoughts of the word of God. In other words, my natural impulse as soon as things go wrong is not to question myself. <laughs> it's a question what? God's word. It's not true. God must have been in, in error there. He's led me astray. And where does all this come from? It's the same hard attitude in the garden. God, you're a liar and God, you are not good. It's the bent of our that's my natural reaction. So keep an eye out for these in, my, in your life. The Lord's challenging me this week. Where in my life am I slow to trust the Lord? Where in my life am I quick to question His Word, which is pure? That's more than pure than pure gold. And yet I would question. I'd say, God, it's not true. It's, you don't know my circumstances. It's not accurate. It doesn't work in my case. Fight faith. Fight with these truths. Fight with these words. So his word is absolutely reliable. Absolutely trustworthy. And when you dig into it, you trust it, you apply it to your life, you'll grow in confidence. And that's the average point. It's the word of God. So that's verse 5. And now verse 6 proclaims the absolute sufficiency of God's word. So not only is it authoritative and inerrant, 
and totally reliable, it is sufficient. <coughs> Verse 6 says, Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. So verse 5 quoted Psalm 18.30. Verse 6 quotes Deuteronomy 4.2. This is what's called the canonical formula. You see it in a number of books that warn against adding man's words, mixing it in to God's pure words. In the context of Proverbs 30, God's words are Agur's words, right? Agur's a prophet. In the context of Deuteronomy 4.2, who are God's words? They are the words Moses is speaking. And you go to Revelation. How's the end of the Revelation? How does it end? The book of Revelation. It ends with a warning. Do not add to these words, right? It's significant. Because God's words spoken through his prophets are absolutely true, pure, and reliable. Man dare not mix the dross of his wisdom with it. That's the idea it's a warning from adding or removing even the smallest detail from God's word. It's significant. It's weighty. And look at the next line, 6b. The judgment is warned. It says, don't add to his words, lest he rebuke you. That's judgment language. And you be found a liar. In Deuteronomy 4, adding or taking away from God's word was what? It was a, it's a capital offense. You can get stoned for doing this. Hagar says the same thing. Why would you be found a liar? Why would you be exposed as being a liar? Because you're saying, thus says the Lord, when he did not say it. That's Hagar's point. So the question is, what does this have to do with the sufficiency of Scripture? I said verse 6 is the sufficiency of Scripture. Why did I title it the absolute sufficiency of God's word? We'll flip back over your implications on the back page on number two. The answer is because the mandate not to add to God's word assumes that there's nothing that is left that needs to be added. You see? To add God's word would be indictment on his character that he didn't give us enough. That he withheld what we did need, and so it's up to man now to supplement it. God, you didn't add enough. You didn't give us enough. That's why it's sufficient. The very command itself, don't add, assumes that there's nothing left to add. God knows what we need and everything that we need to know is revealed to us. Charles Bridges said, what more can, uh, uh, he says, for if the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise into salvation, what more want we? What else do we need? This is it. Everything we need for faith, salvation, knowing God truly, living rightly, is given to us in the scriptures. We need to add nothing. Again, Westminster Confession puts it this way, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or the traditions of men. It's significant. It implies the sufficiency of Scripture because God's given us everything we need, and this verse implies the sufficiency of Scripture because man has nothing he could add to it, right? Right? Keep the, the train of thought of Agra in mind. 
What does man possibly have that he could add to it? What is man's wisdom? It is finite. It's fallible. It's easy to go astray if it's not informed by what? By the word of God. Man has nothing that he could put side by side with scripture that could compare to it. So it has to be sufficient. Or else where would we go? Page here. There it is. So now, just one more thing before we finish. We've got a couple minutes. Um, these are sort of big categories, and you give big categories, there's always room for nuance. Um, but when we declare these truths, everyone, I would assume, agrees with them. This word is pure, it's accurate, it's infallible, it is authoritative. It is the ultimate authority by which we live our lives. It is sufficient. Let me just highlight to you for a minute that this temptation to add to God's word is, is very subtle. I mean, you see it through the history of the church, with Roman Catholicism. You see it in even the Pharisees of Jesus' day who brought the traditions of men. You see it uh, in our world in a number of ways. It's subtle. And the point that I just want to highlight is you don't merely add to God's word when you take a clipping out of your favorite philosopher and tape it in the back of your Bible and say, well, this is scripture as well. Obviously, that would be adding to God's word. But you don't merely have to scribble, God, scribble man's words into the Bible to be adding it to God's word, right? It has nothing to do with your pen. It has to do whenever we take the thoughts and the traditions of man and elevate it to the same level as God's word. Right? It has nothing to do with whether I write it down or not. Do I treat anything else on the same level of authority as God's word? That is what it looks like to elevate man's wisdom. So think of the Catholic theology. They, 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 yeah, the scriptures are truth, but we also need the Catholic dogma and traditions and the church fathers, through these lenses we can interpret the scriptures. Or the Pharisees come to Jesus and they complain about the disciples eating with unwashed hands. And Jesus said, you neglect the word of God for the traditions of man. They elevate it to the same level they added to the scriptures. Whenever you raise man's ideas to the same level as God's word. Scriptures are not just one source of revelation alongside other sources. They're the decisive and ultimate and exclusive source. The Bible does not stand side by side with human reasoning or man-made discoveries in the world. This is the key. The Bible stands as the ultimate rule, the foundation, the scales, the filter, the baseline through which everything else is weighed and assessed. So the, the natural question now is, well, what do we do with extra-biblical teaching? What do we do with the discoveries of science? What do we do with philosophy? What do we do with all these other things out there? Do we reject it wholesale? Do we just hide away in a, in a little monastery and, not, and just ignore the world? What, what, what do we do? How do we interact with the teachings of, of man? Finish with this quote by a man named Greg Bonson, who's an apologist. Very helpful writings. And uh, he puts it this way when he's trying to answer the question between the proper relationship between Jerusalem, the scriptures, and Athens, man's reason. Right? How do these two relate? How should Christians relate these two? That's how he puts it.
Christians have long disagreed over the proper strategy to be assumed by a believer in the face of unbelieving opinions or scholarship. Some renounce extra-biblical learning altogether, Jerusalem versus Athens. Others reject biblical teaching when it conflicts with secular thought, Athens versus Jerusalem. Genesis must not be real because science teaches evolution. Some others try to appease both sides, saying that the Bible and reason have their own separate domains, Jerusalem segregated from Athens. Others attempt mingling the two, holding that we can find isolated elements of supportive truth and extra-biblical learning, Jerusalem integrated with Athens. Still others maintain that extra-biblical reasoning can properly proceed only upon the foundation of biblical truth. Jerusalem, the capital of I think at the end of our study, we see that is the right way to go forward. It's not like we reject unbelieving man's conclusions wholesale just because they're an unbeliever, but everything we take, everything we learn, is filtered through the grid work of Scripture. This is the ultimate rule. This is the ultimate standard. It's the filter through which we assess anything, and anything that contradicts it, or anything that wants to go beyond it, is not to be accepted by, by the believer. It is our ultimate commitment. So the best way to think of it is your glasses. It's your lenses through which you assess everything. There is much we could work out, implications we don't have time to get into. But just try to apply this as you go through life because of all that agro-declares. It has to be the ultimate rule. It has to be the ultimate standard through which I live my life. It's my glasses. It's through this now that I can see everything clearly. So just in summary, go back to your outline on that last page, um, the outline, including a way that actually the ESV study Bible gives a very helpful conclusion to this whole section. It says the whole of verses 2 to 6 thus teaches that human wisdom is limited, that the wisest people recognize their ignorance, and that truth resides in the word of God, and that no one should think that he is able to enhance the wisdom of God is good. That's good. That's accurate. And uh, he's profound. He's calling us to make the scriptures the central rule of our lives. And it takes work. And it's hard. There's nuance to it. You have to, to work it out, but it is the uh, ultimate rule by which we assess everything. And it's our starting point. We don't undergird it and support it with, with other things. So we are right at 1015. That was a lot. I opened the fire hydrant on you and let it out. Um, I want to get through agro. don't want to drag it all through the summer. But um, any questions, comments, anything confusing, anything you disagree with, anything you want to push back on? What do you think? Yeah? How do we balance, you know, the idea that you didn't give them signs or more wisdom? How do we balance that with the idea of, like, Christian apologetics? Mm -hmm. And, like, I know a lot of apologetic courses are like, oh, well, here's, like, different I don't think it's an appropriate method of apologetics. Now, are there are there proofs for God? So answers in Genesis? I use I love Kent Ham. I love answers in Genesis. I think there are evidences that of the flood account. I think there's evidences of all these things. But ultimately, these things are not what I bring into undergird the scriptures. Rather, it's my confidence in the scriptures that are my lenses that helps me interpret science rightly. So, I, I, 
I don't think, and I don't think it's decisively helpful for an unbeliever because they're going to reject it. Why? Because they don't have this as their presupposition, right? Their presupposition is man, and he's able to come to ultimate conclusions through science. And so I can give him Ken Ham all day long, but he's going to reject it because his presupposition isn't the scriptures. Um, and he needs the Holy Spirit. So, I don't know, is that helpful? Okay. And this is not something that you can nail down in 30 minutes Sunday school. I mean, I encourage you guys to dig in. And I can give you some good resources for it. Um, but it's hard. It's, uh, there, there's a lot of nuance, like I said, to it. I don't want to discount um, a lot of good teaching out there, but I just want us to be careful. So, yeah? I think the physical evidence and proofs of you know, scripture and things mm-hmm. are helpful for someone who's genuinely open to the truth mm-hmm. versus someone who's mm-hmm. like, well, then explain this, we'll then yes. explain this with more of a combative yes. yep. a denial on this mm-hmm. part. So, I think there's a time and place where. And ultimately, I mean, those, those proofs are for believers to encourage us to in our, in our confidence of, of Scripture. But again, it's your starting place is Scripture, and you're going to these things. That is what Scripture declares, and look, boom, it's, it's exactly what, what he says. It accords with the reality we see around us. And so it's not sin to do that, but just the, the bent and the temptation to try to depend on human reasoning and science and discovery is buried in the scriptures as though it depended on that. Um, it's, a, it's a subtle temptation um, to, to be worked out. Yeah? One of the big difficulties to, to balance is God doesn't want us to come to the scriptures and totally divorce it from our reason and logic. Mm-hmm. And he, he's logical and yes. um, he is a reasonable, logical God logic is finite, agor, and it's depraved, Romans 1. And so, um, we're, we're, it, we can have the most evidence in front of it, but natural heart, apart from the Holy Spirit, is going to do what? It's going to bend it. It's going to twist it. Um, this has to be a rule. Dave, you have something? Yeah. You know, I think I think something you said is very true and very common, which is that if, a, if someone's not a believer, there's no, there's no earthly proof that's going yeah. to believe in the Bible. I think there's something else for believers to know, and I know this from experience, um, and it just occurred to me just now, which is that if you're struggling with a spiritual truth, which happens all the time, if you read this in the Bible, yeah. so that means it's true, and you're like, whoa, wait, what? There's no... Sometimes, I guess, I find myself looking for external proof that that's true. So you find yourself looking for like an external way that you can comfortable with this thing in the Bible that makes you uncomfortable, you're not going to find it, I promise you. You might find it for like a week. You might find something that you can mentally cling to and be like, oh, okay, when I'm bothered about this this biblical command, I will remember this thing that I researched and feel better. But something else will creep in and eat at you. And you'll find yourself doubting the same things all over again. And the only thing that you can really do is just constantly pray and examine what your unbelief is based on. I would say that 
it takes time and it's frustrating and and it's very difficult, especially if you if you if you tend to reason through problems, you'll find yourself unable to do so. But that doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even mean that you that you are are ignorant. It may just be that that you just need to, to sure. let this weigh on you for a while. I guess is is something that I found. It's excellent. And it's much easier to give in the temptation of, well, I'm going to go to a website, mm-hmm. or I'm going to go listen to a Christian theologist, and he's going to tell me, well, such and such proves this. That's not what you need. Yeah. It may, in the moment, have some kind of doubt that you're having, but ultimately, the fundamental problem is grappling with unexpected revelation, mm-hmm. the things that we read in the Bible that we didn't necessarily expect to be there, even though we read it a thousand times. Mm-hmm. And your habit, your pattern of dealing with that is a real key, I think, to spiritual maturity. It's excellent. Excellent. Yep. Yep. And I would, uh, I would um, echo two things. Is scriptures actually often answer those questions. You just got to dig in and you just got to say it's hard. Don't be discouraged because believe, it's, believe what it testifies about itself and then pursue it expecting to, to get clarity eventually. The second thing um, is Bible doesn't have... Everything there is possibly to know, it has everything we need to know. And I'll close with Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, uh, the secret things belong to the Lord. The revealed things belong to us so that we need to do them. There's secret things about God we don't know and we don't need to know. And we dare not probe into. Rest satisfied with Scripture. So we are way over time. 10.20, let me pray really quick. Let me go. Father, we thank you for your word. It's clarity, it's power, it's authority. Help us to submit our lives to it. Use it as the grid work for everything. Give us wisdom and skill to work these things out. We pray. Prepare our hearts to receive your word in the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen.